This podcast edition of Other Side of Texas is brought to you by our friends at Flint Boot and Hat, a West Texas original. You want a great hat or you want to make your boots great again, go see them at 3035 34th Street or Flint and 34th Street in Lubbock or see more at Flint. It was freezing cold in Dallas when I made my getaway. I outran a cold front when I gave my truck the rent. Barreling down I-35 with one thought on my mind Forget the race, find an open space, be that city Hey there, howdy. Thanks for tuning in and telling a friend that you hang out here on the other side of Texas, all sorts of stuff. I'm Jay West Texas Leeson, broadcasting from the Racer Car Wash Studios Voted Lubbock's Best Wash for five years running. Stop into one of five convenient locations across the Hub City for the best wash around, guaranteed. You want to be a part of the program? 806-745-5800. Text in your thoughts there as we roll along. Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, set to join us, and thereafter you've been seeing and hearing about flooding in the hill country and it looks to you see structures going up over dams and it is really thoughts and prayers it looks like a terrible situation right now in the hill country with more rain expected we're going to fix our eyes on the rolling plains stamford texas um and the mayor of Stanford, Texas, James Decker, will be joining us about 5.35 to tell you about Lake Stanford and what's occurred there. Interesting, as we go along, I know a lot of people who listen to this program are within my own age demographic, somewhere between 35 and, and 55, and thank, thank you to all those outside that age demo who listen but within my cohort, it's it's notable that James Decker, within his first few months as mayor of Stamford, Texas, his hometown, uh, to come in and to share his insights. And I think as much as I want to know about what's happening with displaced residences, uh, displaced citizens, I should say, from their residences, it's going to be interesting to hear how James Decker has dealt with this and his thinking through it. So uh, if you're a stranger to the program, uh, thank you for listening. If this is one of your first times listening, thank you as well. And uh, But if you've lis- been listening to the program for some time, you know that James Decker is a friend of the program and glad that he's going to have time to jump on with us. So... Where to begin right now, I don't have much on the Regent Gate. I want to break that down a little bit later, maybe towards the end of the program, where we are in Regent Gate. And I just, there's not a lot left without going far into the weeds, but there are some notable aspects. Yeah, it's been a while since we heard that. Our Regent Gate. Music. It's my throat cracks like I'm 13 years old. Me 
Yesterday, I, I think I mentioned, I went to the State of the University luncheon there at, uh, hosted by the Lubbock Chamber. Incoming Texas Tech Chancellor Ted Mitchell asked, do you have the political capital necessary to get a vet school and a dental school done? He responded, damn right. And I think that's why a lot of people really enjoy Ted Mitchell, uh, all that to play out in the months to come. But where I want to start is, I know lots of you depend on this program to keep you in tune with what's going on back home. Somebody earlier was on our Facebook page saying that they were listening from across the world. I I don't know where that is exactly. Uh, Maybe, uh, is that Lamb County? I, I don't know where that is. Uh, Eastern New Mexico. Um, an interesting, and let me just, let me set this up. I, I mentioned this yesterday and the day before, previous episodes of the program. There's been this weird shift in federal law uh, based upon a law that was signed by the president, the Federal Aviation Administration Reauthorization Act of 2018 that says that you cannot, effectively says you cannot tax rental vehicles for projects away from the airport. Now, how random, I was talking to somebody who used to be a news editor, an editor uh, at a big TV station in town, did it for like 20 years. And he said it was random how they got on calls with their corporate, on corporate teleconferences and how often Lubbock, Texas led in big news. And the big news coming out of that FAA reauthorization is that Lubbock is one of the first places that may or may not have to, Lubbock County at least, to have to deal with the ramifications of what's effectively an October surprise, that you may have some ballot initiatives on the ballot that have been there since August 22 or uh, mid-August at least, and then the feds come in and bring in new federal law that may override on the ballot. Of course, I'm mentioning the Lubbock County Expo Center. There is ballot language that says that they are seeking up to, up to, prepositions are important here, up to 5% in new rental car taxes and up to 2% in hotel occupancy taxes. Now, what federal law has just done is said you cannot tax on rental cars for projects away from the airport. They don't use the term rental cars. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the, the exact language, but I think it's commercial businesses on airport property. And there's a lot of discussion about whether that's just hotel, pro- uh, uh, excuse me, airport property or away from the airport as well, permitted by the airport. And, and forgive me for going too far into the weeds there, But how random, it's just my headline, how random would it be that this October surprise lands on a big initiative in Lubbock? Now, 
first thing, I've talked with many people associated with the Lubbock County Expo Center effort, and I'm told and assured that they need no rental car revenues, that it was essentially a backstop, that they also have a $10 million endowment involved. And my own figure, based on my own head, because I haven't gotten numbers yet, but I think that rental cars are probably six to maybe eight million of what they expected in revenue. And as I said yesterday, you have committee members who've achieved a lot more than six million dollars, one in particular, a hundred million dollars. I take them at their word whenever they say that they don't need rental car tax revenues to complete this project, that it, it was essentially asked for as a backstop but we've also yeah a, a text in from chris you guys get the most random breaking news we and we do and i think that yeah, there's the music um i will say that there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not i missed that that i went with something that wasn't rental cars and maybe meant for aviation fuel uh, for something else well i submitted a public information request to lubbock county just today got my response and it is a response from howard zaroff I believe that's how he says his name, Howard Zeroff, Enterprise Holdings, Vice President, General Manager, Enterprise, of course, Overseas, Alamo, and National, huge conglomerate. I'll spare you the whole email that was addressed to Lubbock County Commissioner Bill McKay, but I will cite two lines. Apparently, they had had an on-the-phone discussion before, and he says, as discussed, the motor vehicle rental tax collected at Lubbock Airport would no longer qualify to be used for the venue project. And uh, then concludes, please let me know if you have any further questions or feel free to reach out to me if you need a contact person in the car rental industry. Enterprise saying, hey, we ain't paying it and uh, Alamo National and the Lubbock Expo folks, and I expect to hear from them in the next couple of days, saying, guess what? We don't need it. So that's some breaking developments. Here we are, Lubbock. And this isn't just Lubbock, folks. This is going to be, imagine if you had a DFW or a Bergstrom in Austin or a George H.W. in Houston or St. Louis, or you even go up and... Uh, into Boston and Logan and LaGuardia. That's a big deal across the country, and I expect that it's going to become a big deal in Washington. Much bigger deal, much bigger fish to fry than just a Lubbock Expo Center. But again, Lubbock Expo Center steering folks telling me, hey, we don't need it. Uh, it's an inopportune moment, and I would completely agree we don't need it. We'll hear from them, but first we're going to hear from Ross Ramsey coming up here on your other side. My political counselor, stick right where you are. Take some money in for the next couple of minutes. Be right back with you here on the other side of Texas. 
Hey, welcome back into your other side. This segment is brought to you by Title One, Lubbock's Digital Real Estate and Title Escrow Company. Took that a while to pop up. Uh, Title One is committed to providing you with the highest level of communication and service from the time the contract opens until it closes. See how our friends at Title One can serve your realty consumer and lending needs at TitleOne.com. Joining us on the line, as he does each week, is my political counselor. Let's all just sit down on his couch for just a moment and see what he's been thinking, help get our minds right here. He is Ross Ramsey. Ross Ramsey, how are you, friend? All good. Uh, it's cold and rainy in Austin, Texas, so I guess this is um, our 15 minutes of winter, right? Yeah, I guess you'll be on the line for that whole duration of winter there. Um, <laughs> Could happen, yeah. Uh, lots of flooding around you? We're going to get in yeah, it's, some flooding it's a, next It's a little time. north of here. It's on the, on the Colorado River up around, starting where the Llano River pours into the Colorado, really, really high water. Um, and the lake system is kind of overwhelmed with it. They had a ton of runoff, and it's a real problem. Um, there has been a, a, a small, uh, you know, I mean, the, the toll on people has been relatively light, but the toll on property has been relatively heavy. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's switch gears. Got lots of flooding talk to come up in the next segment. Uh, Ross Ramsey, you saw that debate last night, and break it down for us. What what did you think that Cruz had going for him, and what did O'Rourke have going for him, and what did each have going against them? I, you know, I thought Cruz had the upper hand all the way through that debate. I thought that it was a not a great night for Beto O'Rourke. I thought he was playing Cruz's game and not his own. And by, you know, I think what do you the, mean by that? Well, I think, you know, Cruz wanted him to go on the attack and take away sort of the high road from Beto O'Rourke, and Beto O'Rourke uh, did, you know, played right into that. So, you know, he um, got a little tough on, on Cruz. I don't I don't think he got really tough on him. He didn't really land any real blows. Uh, he had a couple of good lines. But he lost that luster of, you know, you're playing, you know, attack politics and I'm playing the high road. And, you know, Cruz said, well, it doesn't surprise me that you're gone on the attack. And, you know, now we're working into that game. So, you know, I think it made some of his uh, Democratic supporters happy who were hoping that he would, you know, punch Cruz around some. But I think, you know, the net net was I think that um, Cruz had the better night and won the debate. The best thing going about that for a work is that not many people watch these debates. Uh, okay. So a couple of things. One, do you think O'Rourke went the way he went because I think the adage in politics, especially as you come into the week before early voting, if you're behind, you attack. Do you think that that was a concession on the O'Rourke team part that maybe they are back nine in a, quote, toss-up race? You know, I think their whole campaign has been predicated on a running from behind idea and up to this point i think it's been you know they've had some great success with it there is you know there is a ton of money they've got a higher profile than um 
you know, than Democrats usually have, or, you know, really in Texas have any right to, just given the history. Uh, he's run a better campaign than Wendy Davis ran four years ago when she was the star of the Democratic Party. And, you know, he's, you know, he's not done yet. I mean, he raised $38 million in the most recent quarterly report. That's a lot of money that you can, you know, put on TV, money that you can put into organization. You know, this is not a dead campaign by any means. I just think that they, you know, last night, they, the other guy had a better night. When going into the debates in the very first place, you know, most of us were, were thinking, you know, this is Cruz's natural ground. I have a friend up here, who, another political writer, who said, you know, Cruz, uh, Cruz on the debate platform is the happiest version of Cruz. And, and I think there's something to that. He's very good at it. He's very comfortable at it. It's not a works natural place. And I think Cruz's superiority at debating really showed last night. Uh, so far, this has been my political premise uh, in Texas. And I talked with Mike Collier. We're going to get into your hot list here in just a moment. I talked with Mike Collier, lieutenant governor candidate, yesterday on the program. But for me, the game for O'Rourke has to be in order to make up the gap against Cruz to draw over any Trump supporters. Did you see O'Rourke appeal to Trump supporters last night in what you gathered? No, I don't think you're going to get many crossover votes from the Trump end of the party. You know, the the Republicans most likely to vote for a Democrat are the moderates. And, you know, to the extent that they're persuadable, you know, maybe um, O'Rourke has some room there. I think more of his chance has to do with turnout uh, than with flipping people's, you know, than with winning hearts and minds. That You know, we're going to break 5 million voters in this general election for the first time in a midterm in Texas history. You know, we get about 9 million people for presidential year elections, but 5 million is, you know, 4.8, 4.9 has always been the high mark. So we'll get 5 million people, but the average Republican beats the average Democrat last four or five cycles by a million or more votes. Um, there are a couple of races that were lower than that, but most of them are a million or more votes. So if you get the same turnout, you either have to have, you know, a bunch of Republicans, a bunch of people who voted Republican in all these elections either stay home or, or change, and a bunch of Democrats who usually don't vote in midterm elections. There may be people who vote in presidential elections. There may be people who don't vote at all turn out. But the gap that you've got to close is, you know, on the upside of a million votes. It's, it's a formidable uh, challenge. And, you know, one of the conversations about O'Rourke has been, where's he spending all that money he's raised? And the, the quiet answer has been on organization, which is basically, you know, what political people call it when, you know, you're trying to get people off their couches into the polls voting for you. And if they've put together a good organization that way, you know, we may have a race, uh, you know, we'll start seeing on Monday when early voting begins. Uh, Ross Ramsey, at Ross Ramsey on Twitter every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at texastribune.org. He releases a new analysis column there at the site in the hot list and you've gone through several races in texas that are on november ballots um that that could be the hottest where there is some real action the democrat effectively in a lot of these races the democrat could win 
which is not very often in Texas, it seems, at present. Uh, the hottest, let's go to this first. And whenever you list them, it's like hot, hotter, uh, hot. Well, under the hot, I should say, you have Justin Nelson and Ken Paxton and then a libertarian, Michael Ray Harris. Justin Nelson have the opportunity to beat Ken Paxton to become the new you know, attorney general? I think there's a very outside chance. These are not all based on competence. Some of them are based on interest in, in other things. And one of the interesting things on this ballot is that we have an indicted attorney general, you know, an attorney general under indictment going into an election. And in almost any definition of politics, that would be a guy in trouble. You know, I think Ken Paxton probably wins this race. Uh, because it's such a Republican state, but it's a very peculiar situation for a statewide incumbent to be in. Justin Nelson's, uh, you know, a respected lawyer. He's a Democrat in a state that favors Republicans, but that's why that race is on the list because it's just such a strange situation for the state's chief law enforcement official to be under indictment and on the ballot at the same time. Yeah, um, and he's got, you know, I've seen pictures there at Texas Tribune of, of the new billboards, uh, just Ken Paxton indicted with his indictment right. photo there on. These are the Justin Nelson billboards, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I've looked, but I don't know. Do I see Mike Collier versus Dan Patrick on your list? Didn't make my list. Why not? You know, I think most of the statewide races are, you know, safely in Republican hands. And, you know, what you're looking for or what I'm looking for when I put a list like this together is what looks unusual in, in terms of what makes this more competitive or what makes this more interesting or what's different about this race. Um, you know, the, the advantage that Dan Patrick has, this is going to sound strange, is that he's not as well known as some of the other politicians in the state. I think one of the reasons that Beto O'Rourke has done so well against Ted Cruz is that Ted Cruz ran for president and firmed up some Republican support, but he also firmed up dem Democratic um, opposition. And people who got their mind made up against Ted Cruz were looking for someplace to go. Boom, there's Beto, Beto O'Rourke. Mike Collier has a harder proposition running against Dan Patrick because he's not nearly as well-known as Ted Cruz. Um, you know, we know these guys because we write about them and talk about them all the time, but the average Texan, when you look at polls, you know, a little further from Election Day, it's surprising how unknown you can, you know, how prominent you can be in politics and how unknown you can be to most voters. And, and Dan Patrick, you know, benefits a little bit from that. As you get closer to an election, your name ID goes up, but people don't have the same connection between Dan Patrick and things they like or Dan Patrick and things they don't like that they have with the Ted Cruz. And that makes it harder for a challenger like Mike Collier than it does for a challenger like Mitchell O'Rourke. One statewide race that you do have, and this matters up from where we're broadcasting, where at least in a 100-mile radius around Lubbock, cotton does about $5 billion annually, the cotton industry. And then further, you've got $100 million plus in livestock up in the panhandle. But uh, you, one statewide race that did make your list is Agriculture Commissioner, another, I should say, another statewide race, Agriculture Commissioner Kim Olson and Sid Miller. What appealed right. to you there for that to make the list? 
You know, what's peculiar about that one is Sid Miller. You know, Sid Miller has generated headlines, you know, um, and he's been great for my business. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's been an outspoken, um, sort of um, notably um, unusual politician in office. He's kind of a Donald Trump of, of Texas politics. And the question is whether that's turned voters off and made him vulnerable to Kim Olson, or whether, you know, people kind of knew Sid Miller was like that when they elected him, and, you know, what's in the can is just what was written on the outside and on the content section. So, you know, if, if you know, Sid Miller's exploits and antics over the last four years haven't unsettled that, then, you know, that's just another sign that it's a very, very Republican state. In a normal election in a state where, you know, there was an even number of Republicans and Democrats like him past him, he'd be in trouble. Hmm. So let's go into, and listeners, stick with me. You can do this. Uh, you new listeners and long-time listeners, you'll appreciate this question. Sarah Davis is out of West University Place right outside Houston, uh, the biggest right. medical district in Texas. She is, some would put different labels on her, but I think it's pretty, I think a lot of people would agree, probably the most moderate Republican in Texas, in the Texas legislature. Um, if she loses this race, and her race made your list, your hot list, right? Uh, do you think that people point fingers at the governor who primaried her, who may have muddied the waters for her, and essentially lost a Republican seat in the Texas House? You know, I think that's one of the things that you've got to think about. I think the proximate cause is that, you know, she's running as a Republican in a blue county in a year where uh, Beto O'Rourke looks like he's going to do pretty well in Houston. John Culberson, a Houston congressman, has been in that seat for a long time over there, is in trouble there. Um, you know, um, you know that's actually a county where Mike Collier might do really, really well against Dan Patrick. You know, there, there are some other things going on there. Uh, they're going to have popular Republican county judge, Ed Emmett, who may be in trouble this year, you know, and, and wouldn't be in a normal year. And, and it's because that county is has been turning blue uh, for a couple of cycles. It was purple, and it was, you know, a Hillary Clinton win in 2016. And Sarah Davis is, you know, that puts a Republican like Sarah Davis on an uphill road. She's in a swing district, and which is one of the reasons why she's been a relatively been successful as a moderate Republican. Austin Republicans don't like that, but back home, that's the only kind of Republican who can get out of a primary. And she proved in March when she ran against Greg Abbott's chosen candidate, uh, Susanna Dockerville. Hmm. Uh, Ross, I've said, and I'm just going to stake my flag here, I've said the closest race I think there will be on statewide and above will be Mike Collier versus Dan Patrick. I don't mean to defy you, political counselor. Well, these are just guesses. These are just, you know, this is just conversation. I'm not, I'm not a swami. And, you know, there's always, there are always, I've been doing this list for a long time, and there are always a couple of races that, you know, for some reason or another I didn't have on the list that turn out to be real humdingers. And there are always a few on this list that turn out to be, you know, why do you have that down? Yeah. Oh, so oh. Um, everything's everything's just a conversation. But I, I think at this point, you're looking at um, you're really looking at a situation where we're in the last two weeks. This is going to turn uh, 
less on issues and more on turnout. Who shows up to vote, and are they, you know, are they flying a red flag or a blue one? Uh, Ross Ramsey, one last thing. Got about another minute, and I know that we've kept you long. Uh, Paul asking this question. I asked you a couple of weeks ago, are there 150 seats in the Texas House based upon the Psalms and 31 seats in the Senate based upon the Proverbs? Thank you, Paul. You got any follow-up for us there? I can find nothing to substantiate that. Nothing. Fake yeah, news. Yeah, I haven't seen anything. I, well, Fake I news. just, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, you never can prove a negative. I'm not going to say it's not out there. I just, I have, I can find no evidence of that. All right, Ross but, Ramsey. But I am, I am, I am receptive if it turns up. <laughs> okay. Hey, uh, thank you as always, Ross Ramsey. Follow him again at Ross Ramsey every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Texttribune.org. Thank you for the weekly check-in, Ross Ramsey. Always a pleasure, buddy. Talk to you next week. All right. Uh, Going to get into a little break and then get our friend James Decker on the line to talk about a lot of devastation down in the Rolling Plains. Stick with us. You know, the Rolling Plains down in the hill country, it's just incredible. Um, and let James Decker describe it from his Texas. point of view. Stick right with us here on the other side. Hey, raving on. That's what we do here on the other side. Uh, the other side of Texas sponsored by the law firm of Mullen, Horde, and Brown, LLP, with offices in Lubbock, Amarillo, and Dallas, employing creative legal solutions to address your business needs in the areas of commercial litigation, banking, financial restructuring, employment law, and estate planning friend of the program here to give us some insight about flooding down in the rolling plains. And by the rolling plains, what I mean is you take the McKenzie Trail off the Cap Rock and go east a little bit north of Abilene. And that's where you'll find Stanford, Texas, where James Decker is a little bit behind the pride of Stanford, Texas, Charlie Stenholm. James Decker, thank you for taking time, Mr. Mayor, to check in here on the program. Glad to do it. Uh, so I see a lot of video from Marble Falls and from down in the hill country, but you don't need to go all the way into the hill country to see what flooding is done. Tell us about Lake Stanford there in your neck of West Texas. Well, you know, we are certainly more fortunate than uh, than folks down there who have dealt with some pretty severe I mean, losses of life and injuries and that sort of thing. You know, um, pra praise the Lord, we haven't had anything like that. But, uh, you know, we've had about upwards of 20 inches of rain in some parts of the greater metro Stanford area in the past, you know, since September 1. And, you know, I really appreciate year. that you just use Metro with Stanford, by the way. If, if I can bring some levity to this, but go ahead. they got to have a vision for the future, man. Uh, so, you know, 20, 20 inches of rain west of, uh, west of the 98th Meridian is a good year, much less a good, you know, month and a half. And after a, a dry summer that cotton really could have used some rain, um, here we are now with getting it all in one, in one fell swoop. So... Uh, you know, the, the lake was already in good shape. Uh, so Lake Stanford is owned is the city of Stanford's water supply and services some outlying rural communities and rural water supplies. It's owned and operated entirely by by the 
city of Stanford. It's not a not a Brazos River Authority Lake or a, a Corps of Engineers Lake or anything. And and so it was in good shape. It was a couple of you know about four feet low before all this rain started in in September. Uh, we crossed over. We filled it up um, into September, and then it kept raining and raining and uh, went over the spillway. And you know a couple of feet over the spillway is not a big deal, but. You know, last week we got up into, um, I think our peak was 5.3 feet over the spillway, which is which is not great. So what's that mean? Whenever it goes up 5.3 feet, what happens? So our our lake is, you know, mostly undeveloped rural pasture around it, mesquite pasture and that sort of thing. But the city of Stanford owns some, uh, owns some property uh, that we've uh, – Rent, rent. We rent the ground out to, and people have travel trailers and trailer houses and permanent residences on on it. And and then on, on other parts of the lake, there are some private landowners who have developed camps and you know lease properties out to people. So last week, or a little maybe, oh, I guess probably ten days ago by now, um, some of those private camps that are on or lower elevation uh, started started flooding, and a lot of and they. Uh, did a voluntary evacuation and folks packed up and left. I mean, there wasn't anybody that got stranded and had to be rescued. But uh, I think I think our estimate this afternoon. I talked to our city manager. We think there's probably you know probably 50 50 or so houses that are impacted there or, or structures, whether it be a house or a travel trailer or whatever. Uh, folks, you know, that have water several feet up in the houses or you know you know in them in varying degrees of difficulty. Uh, city of Stanford side, our elevation is higher. We've got between 15 and 20 houses that either have water. There's a couple of them that have water up in them, uh, that, but there's also, you know, there's some more that have water, you know, maybe underneath the house or up on the porch or that sort of thing. The, the marina store, there's a couple of different, you know, marinas and stores out there that have had water in them. So it's, it's been a mess. Yeah, so tell me, James Decker, you, no, you're at James Decker 2006 and – <clears throat> that 2006 is related to Texas A&M and when you graduated, excuse me, clearing my throat there. Um, tell me, uh, James Decker, how, how old are you? I was born in 84, so I guess I'm 34 at this point. Okay, so just let's, let's talk through some bio right quick. What has it been like for you? to this is your first you were elected back in november correct no i was elected on cinco de mayo may the fifth okay may the fifth excuse me so here you are some six months into the job what has this been like for you tell us this 34 year old you what has this been like to handle i would assume this is your first crisis as mayor what's this been like Oh, well, you know, it's, you know, like I say, it has not been a, you know, like a it's situation in Sonora where you had the town being devastated uh, by by a raging river running through it. You know, Lake Stanford's about, about 15 miles outside of town on a tributary of the, of the Brazos. Um, you know, things have been pretty low-key because it's been one of those, it's not a flash flood situation. We all kind of saw it coming, uh, saw the water coming up and coming up and, and just monitor it and deal with it. Uh, you know, everybody everybody had enough time to prepare accordingly. There were no folks that got stranded or trapped because they were caught off guard. Uh, there were no, you know, I know, I think maybe down there on one of those rivers, I had some folks that were swept away in a in a campground. We didn't have any problems like that. So it's been really more of a of a low key emergency. 
you know, Stanford, Lake Stanford flooded big in 1978 after the remnants of a hurricane uh, flooded it big in 2005. And I was back in town that summer. It was in August of 05, uh, back in town um, during college. And, and so I remember that. And so this has not been as big as either one of those, but it's just been a little bit to deal with. You know, I think it's, it's been important. I've been on, you know, was on one of the news stations in Abilene. Um, it's very important for me to use, use social media, Facebook, kind of keep people updated, um, let things know where they're at, and, you know, answer people's questions and be available. So if somebody sends me a Facebook message, won't know what the deal, what the deal is, and um, then um, make sure to be responsive to, to the citizens. But for the most part, folks, Folks know, you know, this is just part of it. Just every, you know, every every once in a while, that lake's going to get high and it's going to flood, and we all just deal with it and address it. But uh, better than better not having any water at all. Yeah, and so James Decker, Stanford mayor, here with us on the program. Uh, you're getting a reprieve from rain, it looks like, until next week. And you've compared what's going on in the hill country. We mentioned earlier Marble Falls, it looks like it's going to rain in Marble Falls. Um, they were broadcasting on a Wednesday, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And how big a deal is it that it's you're going to get a reprieve from rain, and how much will the will Stanford's lake uh, recede in the meantime? Do you expect? Well, you know, we had a little bit of a reprieve this week. Um, you know, we got, uh, you know, it, the lake got pretty high in the last week, and then we hoped if we could get a couple of days rain, uh, a couple of days of dry weather and sun, we might might get some run some water out, and then it and then it rained four inches on on Saturday, so the lake started rising again. And uh, you know, luckily we did get a bit of a reprieve. The lake peaked three feet over the spillway. Um, and as of today, we're down to 4.2 uh, feet above the spillway. Uh, it's, and it's actually raining right now. It's not raining very heavy, but it's raining a little bit. And we've got chances a little bit through the end of the week, but I don't think the same level of what we had before. Um, so if we can, you know, we've got a spillway that's working and draining the water off. But, you know, there were some questions about that in the community. You know, this is not like a like a possum kingdom type of floodgate situation where like, we open the floodgates to um, to keep the to neutralize the lake level, it's a it's an earthen earthen spillway that drains excess excess water out. And you know, luckily the water the inflow is kind of backed up from um, the way a we've got a farm market road bridge across the uh, far end of the lake. Then it kind of maybe it's kind of a buffer that kind of kind of stifles the water as it coming in um, comes in from the from the creeks. But you know, there's a lot of water backed up for probably. 15 or 20 miles of creeks that are flooded. So it's going to continue to be above the spillway for, you know, I would say for, I would say above, it'll, I'd say it'll probably stay above the spillway period for several months, but I think we're looking at a matter of weeks before it gets back down to a level where things are not flooded. And James Decker, what is a resident of Stanford called? Uh, Stanford, you I, know, Stanford Didion? <laughs> I would say for them, there was a conversation in, in town a while back uh, about that, just kind of a casual conversation. You know, I would say Stamperdite is the most common, uh, most common used. Uh, okay. So, I've, heard Stan, I've heard Stanfordians, but I'd say most commonly Stamperdite, although it was my favorite suggestion that I heard was Stamperdillo. Okay, so how many Stamperdillos are out of their homes right now, and where are they? Where have they taken refuge? Well, um, 
you know, I would, I'm going to say probably, and not knowing, because a lot of these folks that live in the private camps, you know, they're actually what they call on the Haskell side of the lake, on the north side of the lake. So mm. um, we're not sure exactly where those folks are. A lot, I'd say the majority of these houses are, um, you know, lake houses, weekend, you know, type things, you know, people use um, use on, on recreation purposes, not necessarily permanent residents. But I'm going to say there's probably at least, uh, you know, that they had actually opened a shelter in Haskell if anybody needed to needed to come, uh, needed a place to stay. And actually, thankfully, nobody nobody came to it. So I'd say, you know, probably a, at least a dozen or so that, you know, would probably have permanent residences that they are out of. But thankfully, I think all those folks have probably maybe, you know, staying with kids or something like that. Because there are some retired fixed income, you know, folks that live out at the lake because it's a, it's a cheaper place to cheaper place to live. So, you know, those are the folks that you're, you're mo- most concerned about and want to make sure they don't get left, left hanging. Uh, if you listen to the program, I'm very, very methodical in my cartography. He is a West Texan in the area of the Rolling Plains. Mayor James Decker with us here. Uh, Paul asking a very important question on the text line. How was it named Lake Stamford and not Lake Haskell? Well, I will say it's probably um, equidistant from the two of them. Uh, but if you want to look at the construction cost, Stanford built the whole thing. You know, there's there's an old rivalry from back in the day. Haskell was actually going to split half of the cost and pulled out of it. So mm. uh, we're it's it's named after us because we own and operate Man. and pay for the sucker. So we're going to have to get you and the Haskell mayor on the phone and and talk about settling the differences there. Uh, James Decker, thank you for making time. And uh, we do we do care about other sides of Texas and uh, what you've brought to report to us here. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at James Decker 2006. Uh, James Decker, thank you for making time, buddy. Hey, glad to do it, Jay. Thanks, man. Excuse me, Mayor Decker. Thank you for making time. Uh, all right. And we'll check in with you more. And here's the deal. James Decker and I are, are kindred troublemakers, and uh, I'll just preview this now. Leading into December, we're going to put forward our – and, James, I hope that you're online with this, on board. We're going to put together our initiative for rural Texas headed into the 86th legislature. They can listen or they cannot listen, but they will not listen at their own peril. Do you agree? Absolutely, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that to me beforehand instead of bringing me on, bringing it to me on the radio. But uh, you know, I'm behind it. We yeah yeah we we have talked about this offline. Uh, James Decker, thank you for making time, and we'll talk to you next time, bud. Hey, thanks, Jay. Have a good one. All right, uh, James Decker checking in, and uh, gonna go take a quick break and set things up for the rest of the week, and follow up some questions anonymous mailbag coming up right here on the other side hey welcome back in this segment is brought to you by lubbock file room providing safe and secure document storage steve asking do you have any new information on rager gate no don't uh but providing safe and secure document storage and shredding services to Lubbock and the surrounding area since 1992 for a free and hassle-free estimate call Lubbock File Room at 806-744-5444. 
7666. That's Uh Anonymous mailbag coming up, even though I'm going to list at least the first name of uh, who's emailed us. Uh, now, on the Rager thing, listen, now it's caught up in courts. And I know that a lot of you are interested in... What's going on? And speaking of, Abby, I got an email about a week ago from Abby who asked, what about spankings in, let me break this down. So we've been told by sources that in order to get a day off in what was, I guess what used to be, Rager Dykes, um, you had to take a lick. At least that's what some sources have told us. And I don't know what they were thinking on company policy there or HR policy. I don't know if they had an HR professional or not in place. But apparently for every day off you wanted, you had to take a lick. And that just to me... Is right, mother. Yeah, so that uh, thanks for that drop, appreciate it. Um, that seems to be in line with what was going on there. Um, gonna follow up with that and see what we can get. And I appreciate the the question there. Another question coming in, and again, uh, tomorrow. We've got a great show. I'll preview that here in a little bit. But another question coming in from Deanne, and it's, what are you going to be for Halloween? And that, listen, I whenever there was a great Halloween that we had, whenever our little children were so little that they couldn't fight us on what they wanted to be for Halloween, um, we had a great Halloween where... My daughter, who's now 11, I think then she was 8 or 9. She was Dorothy, and then the boys were uh, the Tin Man, and then you had uh, the Scarecrow, the two twins, who are now 9, and then you had our little Charlie, who was, I think he was the Lion. And that was a great Halloween, because they all played a part. Uh, this year, man, we're all over the board. It's just schizophrenic now. It's based on their own interest. Um, I'm not sure yet what Grace is going to be. The boys are going to be the inflatable T-Rexes and run around like crazy wild men, uh, to the neighborhoods in their T-Rex. And we'll try to put some video up on, I'm sure it'll be video worthy up there on the website, the twin boys, Jack and Sam, want to be T-Rexes. And my little Charlie, we got a Nintendo Switch, and now he get, likes to play Mario Kart all the time. He's going to be Bowser. And, again, not sure what Grace wants to be. Uh, Mrs. Leeson and I are going to a fame, a, a party on Saturday night where we have to be a famous dead couple. So, I don't even know if Ro is Roseanne Cash dead. 
Daniel, can you effort on that? Just look it up. Uh, Roseanne Cash, if she's dead, I'm going to be Johnny Cash. Um, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Gonna, I guess we're going to dye my hair black, and I'm going to shave my gray beard, and uh, we're going to go in, and Mrs. Leeson's got me some wild 70s shirt, and uh, going to wear a jacket, and going to be Roseanne and, and Johnny Cash. Um for the party. So appreciate the question there. Uh, Grace is 11. Going on 19. So she's taking her time. To decide what she wants to be. So appreciate that question there. It used to be a whole theme. And then now it's. Um, it's anything but. Um, I don't know. Hold on. He just sent me something. No, that's the wrong Roseanne Cash. I don't... Is Roseanne Cash have a daughter? We're going to have to figure out if Roseanne Cash is dead or not. I'm sorry if I don't know that. Uh, I'm broadcasting from the studios where Buddy Holly became famous, where Waylon Jennings smoked who knows what. Um, I do want to close out by those of you who are interested in Lubbock County issues, uh, Lubbock, the rural metropolis issues, new piece coming up on other side of Texas. As we hear more and more from the Lubbock Expo Center, a project that I think I like, I think I like it. I think I've gotten enough answers to, to answer my own questions even with this out of left field ruling by the feds, uh, ruling I should, a law by the feds, I think I like the Lubbock Expo. But it's interesting to me, and let me just riff a little bit, that it seems to me, and I'm not indicting them on saying that they're wrong, but it seems to me to be that the primary opposition with the Lubbock Expo, how we went from costumes to here, is has a lot to do with my own, um, my own ADD. It seems to me that the primary opposition to the Lubbock Expo Center proposition is a people who like to be against anything. B people who have unanswered questions leading into Monday's vote, uh, early vote, and see the Lubbock Fair Board. And the Lubbock Fair Board is a 50, what is it, a 501c5. They don't have to report their books. They don't have to report their financials. Uh, the Lubbock County Fairgrounds is effectively a 10-day event and out of the year, out of the whole year. But they do, a 501c5 is, my understanding, an agriculture education-based designation. And they maintain that designation because of their scholarships to... Uh, I guess kids in agriculture. I want to hear from those folks too. And I'm just getting into the weeds of all this. Uh, it seems to me the fairgrounds only used for 10 days. Why they weren't willing to um, 
my understanding is that people from the expo effort wanted to make that effort there at the fairgrounds, which would be close to a downtown revitalization effort and close to a new glass box at city hall. That's going up the old, uh, citizens tower that will be a renewed citizens tower. And then the buddy Holly hall of performing arts and sciences and why they didn't want to have the expo on their grounds Maybe because they feel certain in their own mission to provide scholarships for agriculture-based scholars. I, it's all, I'm, I'm figuring this out as we go. Lots of questions about why it's in North Lubbock at this point. The North Loop on um, North University, it's just beyond the loop where the proposed grounds are going to go. Lots of questions get into as we go along, and I'm just coming uh, into these questions. Excuse me, I've been a little bit, a little bit occupied, preoccupied with Regent Gate, but we're going to get to the bottom of this. Pete texting in, great job on digging into the federal angle on this. Uh, thank you, Pete. And look, that's what we try to do here. I don't want to. I'm not a hack. I don't like getting involved in these things unless I'm certain in what I think. On Monday, I was told that I'm crazy. I'm above my head. You don't understand what's going on. This is about aviation fuel. This is about this, that, and the other. No, it's a federal law out of left field that impacts so far as rental cars. Go back and rewind. If you're just tuning in, you can get the podcast on Apple, on Stitcher, on Google Play, anywhere you can get a podcast, you can listen to it. And that's the angle that we've taken is that Lubbock is running the lead in a new, from my observation here on the Caprock, running lead in this new law out of left field. A law that I'm told and I'm fairly certain will not impact what the Lubbock Expo people have in mind. But with that, I got to get home. I got to get home above average dinner and a great family waiting for me. It's laundry folding night there at the Lisa Ponderosa. Going to jump into that. Look forward to being with you tomorrow right here on the other side of Texas, othersideoftexas.com, at OSTX on Twitter. We'll see you right here, Mignana, on the other side.